The Science of Immortality by D.N. Dunlop Read by Graham Dunlop Edited by Darren Grimes Forward. The contents of this volume consist of addresses delivered at various times before the lodges of the Theosophical Society, and selected for their reference to the subject of immortality. Some of them were published in The Path, Volume 2. In order to make the chapters more or less coherent, the matter has been slightly rearranged, but certain repetitions will be noticed which are unavoidable owing to the interrelation of the subjects discussed and to the fact that, having been addressed to different audiences, some explanation of the bearing of the part and the whole was necessary. I have not attempted to eliminate these redundancies, for the philosophy, sketchily outlined herein, is not easy to grasp, inasmuch as its fundamental data and principles are in contradistinction to much of the current thought of our time. A completely systematized scheme of philosophy this book does not pretend to be. It contains only hints upon which students may build for themselves a science of immortality. Credit is due to Mr. H. W. Percival, editor of The Word, published in New York, for his original work on the philosophy of the Zodiac, and I acknowledge my indebtedness to him. D. N. D. January 1918 Chapter 1. The Approach to the Path In contemplating the avenues of approach to the study of the vast subject which has been known for centuries by the name Theosophy, I formulate four. The Avenue of Indifference, the Avenue of Materialism, the Avenue of Science, and the Avenue of Religion. The majority of men and women in the world are indifferent to Theosophy. The word means nothing at all to them. And the only thing I can see that could affect those on this avenue would be an earthquake, a cataclysm, or some other severe shock. The avenue of materialism is not so thickly populated as it was some years ago. The spirit of the times has changed, and many are rather ashamed to be among those walking along this avenue, although there are a few here and there who are quite happy to be classed as materialists. They are those who want evidence of the proofs accepted by the mystic in regard to eternal life. When asked what proof they require, one discovers that it must be material proof. And to demonstrate to them the existence of the soul, you must provide a proof as tangible as this table. But the soul is not tangible, and it is not so easy to prove the existence of intangible things. On this account, it is often suggested to the materialistic inquirer that he should take up the study of psychical research, and he is probably recommended to read P.F. W. H. Meyer's work on human personality, or other books of a similar character, scores of which have been published in recent years. The whole burden of this literature is to prove by materialistic means that our five senses do not tell us all there is to know of the universe around us. And perhaps some overardent person will recommend the inquirer to attend a spiritualistic seance and there he will find evidence of the existence of what is generally termed the subconscious self. In certain experiments in hypnotism, trance, and spiritualistic phenomena, he will undoubtedly see indications of the functioning of consciousness beyond the physical plane. There is abundant evidence of this sort in the literature devoted to spiritualistic and psychical research study. It is an attempt to demonstrate that there is something in man which is able to function consciously, apart from a physical body and the five physical senses. Thereto, the great bulwark of materialism has been science, but science has undergone such extraordinary developments within the last 15 or 20 years that it is becoming a slighter support to materialism. It is nigh that the man of science should confine his attention to the physical world, sifting and sorting materials, collecting scientific evidence, and gathering all the experiences possible to human beings along this line. But the later discoveries of scientists show that many statements made under forms of investigation can no longer be regarded as correct. Today, the theories of science closely approximate the statements of the old mystics. Modern science is, in fact, justifying the mysticism of the ages. It has shown that God, or something equivalent, is imminent in matter 
The mystics called the atom a soul, a unit of life, a center of potential vitality and latent intelligence. Atoms and souls were synonymous words. And science, having dug deep into matter, has come practically to the same conclusion, although using a different terminology. Matter is regarded by science as a vacuum. Under the X-rays, a solid object appears as a vacuum. In fact, it is said that the only vacuum is a solid object. We know now that it is possible to penetrate walls, to dematerialize an article in one room and materialize it in another room. And these things have been done under investigation strict enough to satisfy eminent men of science. In the light of these experiments, science may be regarded no longer as purely materialistic. But for their work, scientists must be slow to accept a theory of the universe from a mystical standpoint. The scientist may assume some such theory at the beginning of his search, and he will probably have an ideal in his mind more worthwhile than those of most religious devotees. But he declares, It is not my business to say that anything is so until I am able to demonstrate it. We cannot rely entirely, therefore, on that source for proof of the facts we are seeking, and science does not pretend to carry us the whole way. Then we come to the avenue of religion. Now, Christianity being the form of religion best known to us in this Western world, we assume that travelers associated with the Christian religion are in the majority on the religious avenue. Christians are brought up nominally under the domination of Christian theology, but here also we find that great changes have taken place. The higher criticism has been at work, and many old landmarks have been removed. Prominent ministers now go to length of saying that there is no necessity for the existence of an historical Christ, that it makes no difference to the fundamental truth beyond Christianity. The Gospels are as valuable today as ever, and the removal of the historical figure increases rather than diminishes their value. Any serious person who gives even a cursory glance at these channels of evidence will probably come to the conclusion that he has not yet found what he is desiring and seeking. And he will perhaps turn his attention to the mystics and to the philosopher of ancient times. He leaves the study of Christianity and Christian origins and says, in effect, I will venture forth to discover the truth wherever it is to be found. That is the attitude of mind of the real theosophist, the seeker. He accepts truth in whatever form he finds it, in Christianity, in science, in art, in literature, and the other great religions of the world. He frees himself from prejudice as a preliminary to further investigation. I will assume that you have arrived at that point. You are seeking to find the truth. You believe that God's truth is truth, whatever name it may bear, either in the ancient or the modern world. You accept only that to which, in your own heart, you assent as being true, and admit nothing that will not pass that test. You will dogmatize about nothing. After having made certain investigations, having read, perhaps, some of the Christian mystics and books like the New Testament, the Bhagavad Gita, or Thomas and Kempis, there may arise in your experience a reaction, and then history repeats itself. You become again a materialist, though of a different kind. You hear of an astral world, a world of emotion and desire, and you read of certain powers to be gained there which it is possible to exercise your own advantage, and you set about doing it. There is today throughout the world a revival of psychism, a form of materialism just a little more subtle than that through which we passed in the 19th century. We see an increasing interest in the so-called occult sciences, an evidence that the desire of man has got hold of a new toy, and that he wants results. If one undertake these experiments, he may achieve great development on the psychic plane, and will no doubt have demonstrated to him the existence of a world different from this, but still a materialistic world. The true soul is not there. The mind is not there in any appreciable degree. The mind belongs to a clearer, rarer atmosphere, far less emotional, far less exciting, far less interesting, as interest is understood by the majority of mankind. In entering this sphere of experience, one is only mapping out one's life on another level of materialism. 
The materializing tendency of the mind is at work just the same, although in a subtler world, than the physical. One still seeks new sensations, new thrills, new emotions of a sensational kind. Materialism recurs cyclically, and history repeats itself in the race as well as in the individual. No sooner does the Christian come to the conclusion that it is not necessary to believe in an historical figure than there is a cry that the Christ is coming again, and thus arises a new religion that may be exceedingly valuable to many types of mind who are continually seeking for a sign outside themselves. Second, Adventists have been in the world for generations, but today they have quite a large following, and in all countries people are looking for the return of the Christ. The Christ cannot be recognized, however, by any external signs, and if he were to appear in a particular physical body, we should not be able to tell by his appearance whether or not he were the Christ. But this would happen. If the Christ entered any city tomorrow, he would disturb its whole life and civilization, for he comes to bring not peace, but the sword. Why a sword? Because there is a pulsating through his being the life of the solar universe, and the sun's rays cannot be focused on any town or city in our civilization without something happening. If these rays are focused on decay, it will germinate and become very active. A great spiritual being has the same effect on selfish individuals. The evil in persons and in civilizations becomes much more formidable when the sun of righteousness shines upon it. All that is selfish and limiting in human desire springs up like weeds. Now a curious thing has happened. Man seems to be caught in this cycle of recurring materialism. He has become tied up in his evolution, chained by his desire and he is lagging behind instead of going forward to his destiny. In order to explain this, I wish to pass on to a consideration of the theosophical doctrine of the races of humanity, and to point out the path which man must take in order to extricate himself from his present bondage, and learn where to look for deliverance. It is the path on which he may free himself from the action and reaction of the polar opposites, and enter the center of light, the root substance from which spring all manifested worlds, including man himself. On this path he learns the science of immortality and how to use the powers and substances which build all worlds, visible and invisible. Chapter 2 The Races of Humanity A certain school of philosophy teaches that man is the apex of evolutionary development. That, beginning in a very elementary form, life and consciousness have expressed themselves through a variety of periods, stages, and degrees of evolution until they culminate in man. Mystical philosophy points out that this is only partially true. It teaches that the development of the animal bodies, through which we express ourselves as centers of consciousness, as thinking beings, is guided by intelligence inherent in all the realms of nature and in all the kingdoms from the mineral to the human stage. But that at this later stage, a mysterious element enters into the process. It is said that the sons of God, representing the immortal mind of man, saw the daughters of men that they were fair to look upon, and these young-eyed gods descended to take possession of these forms and begin the especial and direct work of human evolution. In other words, the specialized intelligence named mind, the result of previous periods of evolution or days of creation, takes over the specialized forms of that substance through which the world has evolved. And from the moment the dual-sexed mind beings appear, they assume responsibility for further progress. The four physical kingdoms, mineral, vegetable, animal, and human, are each distinct from the others. And the history of life on this planet gives no indication that during the present age of evolution, the consciousness in any one of these kingdoms has ever passed entirely into the kingdom next above it and assumed its form. The transition from a lower to a higher kingdom occurs after a praleia, or day of rest, of our solar system. But in each great period of evolution, physical forms, such as we now use, 
are materialized only in the middle or fourth round of the series of seven rounds. The beginning of every period of evolution of a solar system is the conditioned by the experience of beings or monads in previous systems of evolution. And during the first round of the great evolutionary period with which we are present concerned the breath or nascent mind-body of all monads or beings was produced. During the second round, the life body or body of growth developed. In the third, the design body or plastic matter is formed. And in the fourth, the physical body is produced. Each round provides for the involution and evolution of consciousness through form, according to the characteristic of the round. At the conclusion of every round of experience, of every dip into manifestation, the monads withdraw into the Laya state, until the cycle of the next round begins, when the work of previous rounds is recapitulated before the special effort of the particular round is entered upon. The monads that are evolving in any one round assist those that are involving on the opposite arc of the circle. In our round, for instance, the consciousness of man is evolving while that of the lower kingdoms is involving, and each is necessary to the other by his contact. With minerals, plants, and animals, man assists the growth of consciousness in these forms, and at the same time develops his own self-consciousness. In describing the evolution of humanity in this, the fourth round, occult literature mentions seven root races, their sub-races and family races. The first root race is the breath race, the second the life race, the third the form race, the fourth the sex race, i.e. physical man, the fifth root race is the desire race, the sixth the thought race, and the seventh the race of individuality. These seven races indicate the states of the consciousness of human monads from the beginning to the end of the round. They account for the involution of centers of human consciousness from latency through modifications of substance, spirit matter, until it reaches dense physical matter, and the evolution therefrom through subtler bodies of desire and thought until it attains self-conscious individuality. At the beginning of this round, the human monads of their respective races set in motion the nature forces which prepare the forms of the reception of mind. About the middle of the third root race, when the plastic or astral body was developed, a fetus was formed and propagation in single-sexed bodies was possible. The processes of formation of the first Second and third races are analogous to the physical evolution of mineral, vegetable, and animal forms. The principles involved in the latter are contained in the human-animal form. Students who wish to work out these analogies will find material for research in the secret doctrine. For the present purpose, I can only suggest the correspondence between the formation of the crystal minerals and the first or breath race, between vegetable growth and the second or life race, between animal organisms and the types of the latter part of the third or form race. The earliest mineral deposits manifest form through chemical affinity, which results in the development of the perfect crystal. The second stage recorded is budding. This is practically an expansion of the life cell from within by which it develops. Then through the growth of plant life, desire, begins to manifest by the development of duality within the life cell. And hence, later, the animal cell. At a certain stage in its development, it divides into two nearly equal cells, and these have similar attributes. This is known as cell division or fission. Later again, the cell manifests sex, and the union of two cells of opposite sex is required for propagation, as the process of budding and fission are inadequate for propagation of higher types. The physical systems of growth, mineral, plant, and animal are all recapitulated in the development of the human embryo before birth. In its early stages, the fetus is without sex. Later, it becomes dual, then female, and finally male. Each sex retains the rudimentary organs of the opposite sex. Thus, the present human body is the culmination of four stages of evolution, four rounds, each of which covers an immense period of time. The day in Genesis is a vast period. And in synthesizing the whole story, the writer naturally condensed a great age of evolution, aeon of time, into a day of creation. 
The mystery teaching regarding the creation of man is recorded in every part of the world, in myth and symbol and in all the scriptures of the world. But the scripture that preserves the story most satisfactorily is the body of man himself. This is a definite record of the ancient history of man's evolution. The whole story of human evolution and likewise a prophecy of the future may be found in the birth, growth, and development of each individual. Materialization into distinct male and female bodies did not take place until the end of the third root race. The function of evolution was performed up to this point by nature forces or nature souls. But here the history of man as the immortal thinker, the true human being, begins. God breathed upon them and they became living souls. The secret doctrine describes this stage as the descent of the sons of mind. Mind descends as the sons of God into the forms evolved by the nature souls. To perfect mind is the work of the fourth round, and as humanity passes through the future races of this round, they will develop self-conscious intelligence in all their bodies. The beings of the first race, the old records state, were bodies having the appearance of crystal spheres, less material than sunlight. They were the sons of God who shouted with the morning stars. These spheres contained the ideal or potency of the future man. The breath beings of that first race were self-sufficient. They did not die, nor will they cease to be while the universe endures. They hold in embryo the ideal forms after which all forms have been or will be modeled. It must be remembered also that this first root race is a spiritual race, and not even its most material sub-race, the fourth, may be compared to our physical bodies, except by analogy. It contains the ideal or plan of the whole round, which will not be worked out and completed until the end of the seventh root race. The beings of this race are the parents of humanity, who emanate the form bodies of the races, but do not actually incarnate until the forms are sufficiently developed to respond to their intelligence. The beings of the second race put forth opalescent egg-like forms containing the germs of life called into activity by the breath of the first race, as it stimulates matter to further manifestation. This life race perpetuated itself by projecting similar forms containing an elongated loop. Desire thus expressed itself through these beings in the production of forms like themselves, by a process analogous to the budding of a protoplasmic cell. They each merged themselves into the form they had put forth and condensed around the loop within the form into dual-sexed beings, male and female in one body. This process occupied a long period of time and was not accomplished at once by the whole race existing at that time. It was done by a few pioneers, and the others afterwards followed the example, as happens at every transition from one race to another. The crystal spheres of the first race enveloped only some of the pioneers of that early second race, who remained as instructors of mankind. They are spoken of as the imperishable undying race. The majority of the second race died and reappeared, phoenix-like through their progeny and reincarnations. The bodies gradually became more material and the predominance of one sex over the other more pronounced, at one time the male dominating, at another the female, until finally self-production became impossible. Then separate male and female bodies appeared having a plastic or astral form that later in the third race became physical. The crystal beings of the breath race gave the impetus but remained apart until the beings of opposite sexes appeared when they enveloped and breathed through the bodies produced by physical union, and they remain in contact with man through the mind. From them the mind incarnates, and from the mind the body takes and retakes its human form. Through contact of the mind with the crystal spheres, man is destined to become intelligently immortalized. Each race has a characteristic form through which it expresses itself. But all the races are wrapped up in each of us, and they overlap as evolution proceeds. At the middle point in the development of the first race, the second appeared, and so on. 
The fourth race began to take form about midway in the evolution of the third race. And we are now about halfway through the fifth race, and there should be indications of the beginning of the sixth race. The fifth race, man should be a desire being, and he ought now to have attained to desire in its highest form. Desire controlled by mind. At present, mind is controlled by desire. And most psychic visions and astral appearances are due to the fact that man has become entangled in the world of desire and emotion, that he has tarried on his spiritual journey. The mind is developing through all races, but man has been delayed in the desire body, and the individuals who have reached perfection are now adepts and have gone ahead of the majority of the race. A study of this subject of races, a meditation associated with pure thinking, will result in great illumination. But man is in a position to acquire knowledge of his own being only when he functions on the mental level free from the bondage of desire. Then the light of the spirit will flood the mind and the true nature of man will be known. Much that is perfectly pure and natural in itself is still regarded as sinful. But it is made impure by our thought, by our sensuous and personal desires. When mind became associated with unisexed bodies, it endowed desire with self-conscious power, and sex became a tyrant which intoxicated the mind. It has set its seal on man and made the mind captive. The principle of duality, spirit-matter, in the noumenal world manifests as sex in the phenomenal world. Sex completes the organized expression of duality. Nature is keyed to the law of sex, and cell life works to that end. The sexes are the scales, the two sides of the balance, and the function of mind is to adjust the balance, to learn the nature of life currents in sex bodies and to use and direct them for its own purpose, rather than to be itself dominated by the impulses of desire. But men ignore the laws of reason. They have broken the laws of nature and have become the children of desire, led hither and thither without any higher guide or direction. As the result of the misuse and perversion of this power, this spiritual energy and physical matter, races have been destroyed by cataclysms of fire and flood in ages past, and have passed into oblivion. It is a true statement that the human soul is lost in matter and that mind is the son of God the Savior who has the power to raise the human soul to individual immortality. To sum up this introduction of the study of races, we have seen that at a certain point in evolution, it is the business of the mind per se to take full responsibility for the evolution of form, working toward the final realization of an hierarchy of self-conscious immortal beings. Under the directive intelligence of the logos of our system, the nature souls build up animate and vitalize the forms of the different kingdoms of nature. We, as individual thinking beings, do not produce the forms we now use. Moreover, the operations were guided wisely in all realms of nature until the human kingdom was reached, and there a certain disorder prevails, due to the maladjustment of the mind to its physical embodiment. The fact is that man has not come yet into his true kingdom. The human kingdom is still half-animal, for mind in the majority of the race has not learned to control the fluctuating desires and emotions which are the ruling elements among men today. The poise, power, and complete self-consciousness of individuality, the seventh race, will be realized by the bulk of mankind ages and ages hence, when the mind has been freed entirely from attachment to desires and has attained the knowledge and self-conscious use of all the powers in the human body. But, in the meantime, individuals may take up the work and prepare the way by study and practice. The sixth race is the thought race. Through the understanding and use of mind in relation to the senses and the human races, men pass on to individuality. Chapter 3 Sense Functions and Faculties of the Mind Man, as a thinker, has confused the faculties of the mind with the senses, and I shall endeavor to point out the difference between them. The five senses we know as sight, hearing, taste, smell, and touch, 
There is, in addition, the moral sense and the sense of I am I, i.e. individuality. The faculties of the mind corresponding to these are light, time, image, focus, dark, motive, and I am. These, in my opinion, are mental faculties, and to become a master one must cease working with the senses and exert the faculties of the mind. This is done by the exercise of mental processes as distinguished from sense functions. In fact, it is absolutely necessary for the exercise of the mind through these centers that the senses should not be keyed up but entirely relaxed. In other words, the attention should not be focused in the functions of the senses but in mental processes. If you shut your eyes and try to imagine something you will, after a time, probably see certain pictures. And with practice, you will be able to hold these in your mind. By this process, you may awaken clairvoyant powers, but these will not assist the evolution of humanity. You can do that only by beginning to live as a thinking being instead of as a sense being. What then are the methods of training by which you may begin to live in the light of intelligence and exercise your powers as a thinking being? First, in order to develop the mental faculty of light, it is necessary to practice and cultivate attention, confidence, sincerity, and goodwill to all men. To develop the second faculty of time, corresponding to the sense of hearing, one must exercise patience, endurance, exactitude, and harmony. The image-making faculty of the mind, corresponding to the sense of taste, is developed by coordination, a sense of proportion, and realization of beauty not in color and in sensuous forms, but mathematically in numbers, in the use of words, the understanding of them, and so on. The faculty of focus, corresponding to the sense of smell, is the great focus in glass which, if you know how to use it, you may direct toward anything and thereby understand it. This power or balance is attained by restraining the emotions and not allowing oneself to be carried away by them. By developing justice, a sense of duality, including both sides of the balance and its results, coordinated. The mysterious faculty of the dark, corresponding to the sense of touch, is so named because it is the aspect of mind unknown to most of us. The mind has a dark and a light side, and the exercise required to develop the unused faculty are strength, service to humanity, love, and sacrifice. The motive faculty is very obscure. We are so under the desire nature that very few realize their motives. We do not know how often the element of selfishness enters our best motives and tinges them with the sense of morality, the feeling of self-righteousness. Therefore, we have to exercise freedom of action, honesty, and fearlessness. The seventh power, the I am faculty, is attained when complete individuality as a mental being is realized. Through permanence, knowledge of the self, and the power that springs therefrom by engaging yourself in these exercises with the object of developing through mind your powers as a spiritual being. You may attain spiritual knowledge and get rid of the desire for psychic experiences and new sensations. The table below condenses in convenient form what I have just stated. There's three columns. Sense functions corresponding to is the first column. The second column is the faculties of mind. And the third is exercises for the training of the faculties of the mind. First column, sight, light, attention, confidence, sincerity, goodwill to all. Hearing, time, patience, endurance, exactitude, and harmony. Taste, image, coordination, proportion, dimension, and beauty. Smell, Focus, balance, justice, duality, and unity. Touch, dark, strength, service, love, sacrifice. Moral, motive, freedom of action, honesty, fearlessness. I am I, I am, permanence, knowledge of self, willpower. By practice of the exercises which develop man as a thinker, as a center of pure intelligence, 
you will come in time to the knowledge that the master is to be found nowhere outside your own heart. You will discover, too, that no favors are conferred upon disciples. Merit is the only means of advance, and merit is in the strength of one's independent mental faculties. There is only one thing that reaches the ear of the master, and that is thought. It is what you think he notices and sees and realizes, nothing else. The elements of training to become a master are to be found in everyday life. You must fulfill even the most trifling obligation before you may enter the school of the master. You must have a true sense of proportion. You must train yourself so carefully to balance the different elements in your life that you will never be unfair to any human being. If you are unjust, if you are biased, if you hate anyone, you cannot even take the first step that leads to the master. If you always see the beam in your brother's eye or the moat, or do not see the beam in your own eye, you cannot take the first step. To see God, you must be pure in heart. You must have a clean mind. And the food that enters your mind must be pure. We should each carefully choose the food with which we feed our minds. The number of things we allow to enter insidiously into the thought chamber and which we despise in our best moments is simply appalling. We are not honest with ourselves. We know that we are selfish, but we are accustomed to these habits, and we constantly blame others for the results of our own selfishness. One of the elementary lessons is that you must never blame anyone but yourself for anything that happens to you. You meet only that which you yourself have created. Although it may appear to you sometimes that it comes from someone else, but if your attitude is right, nothing can affect you. You will have absolute reliance on the laws of God and of life, knowing that in the eternal balancing, everything will ultimately be adjusted. We do not realize how necessary it is to have a knowledge of the sure operation of the law in order to develop these sixth and seventh characteristics of the mind. Psychic powers will pass away and fail, but the elements built into the character by the exercise of the mind will remain in consciousness throughout the ages to come. To those living in the world of the senses, such attainments are not attractive, but in their very essence they are immortal, and this is the only way to win immortality. Every step of the way must be fought out courageously and fearlessly. And once you begin to eliminate the sense world and live in mind, the fear disappears. This wonderful body desire has dominated the mind too long. It is the Sphinx. But when at last mastership is attained, the Sphinx will cease to be a power in the emotional world. And having solved the riddle of the Sphinx, having become first the master, it will then be quite easy to use the body of the adept. Think freely, purely, clearly. Give yourself a chance to develop some of the powers of the immortal self. If you have developed the faculties of the mind by the practice of these exercises, you will have no trouble in the astral world when you leave the physical body. You will find yourself in the highest heaven. For by the means suggested, you will anticipate the conditions of the after-death life. And it will no longer have any terrors for you. You will see clearly through all its mirages if this is done daily, there will be no accumulation to be met in a future state. And you lay up your treasure where moth and rust do not corrupt. In the mind, that essentially immortal characteristic of man. Chapter 4 Individuality and Personality Breath involves through life and form, and through form into sex. It evolves through sex, desire, and thought into individuality. This is the cycle of manifestation through the phenomenal worlds and the return to the invisible noumenal world. It represents the path of the soul from the unknown, through the known, into the infinite within and beyond. The building of a personality begins with breath. If self-knowledge or individuality is not reached before breath, then other personalities have to be built until the great work of the manifested world is accomplished. Until we learn through the experiences in many incarnations to go no more out into the cycles of birth and death. Breath appears first at the beginning of involution. All scriptures refer to man as a breath being at that stage of his evolution. 
This breath being breathes the germs of life into activity. The great astral waters are precipitated by breath and become later the visible forms of sex such as we see in male and female bodies. At this point, desire in human form responds to the breath of mind and is fused into human thought. Then begins human responsibility because thought is karma. Breath through thought begins to transmute life and form, sex and desire, into the vesture of the higher self, the true individual. The individuality is not life, although it gives the initial impulse to the breath which breathes life into activity and determines the course of life and defines the field of life's operations. The individuality is not form, though it creates forms for each incarnation and makes the designs upon which each personality is to be built by the life energies and born into the physical world through sex. The individuality is sexless, although it caused the development of the once dual-sexed beings into one or other of the sexes, in order that it might incarnate and pass through the fires of sex to be tempered to the forces of the world in order that by means of the outward and inward cycle of the breath it might find equilibrium through experience of the passion of sex, and by performing satisfactorily the duties to the family and the world while in bodies of sex, learn to balance and harmonize that which appears as separate in its dual operation, but which in reality is one in its perfect action. The individuality is not desire, though it awakens desire from its latent state. It works with desire and overcomes the resistance offered by desire. Thus the mind grows strong and becomes the medium through which desire is transmuted into will. The individuality is not thought, although it produces thought by its action through breath on desire, a process by which the individuality finally transcends pain and pleasure, poverty and wealth and emerges from the furnace of trial, impurity, and immortality. The individual has been called the higher mind, the IMI principle in each of us, which overshadows the personality and partially incarnates from life to life. The lower mind is the reflection of the higher mind through the personality, that portion of the higher mind which incarnates in each of us. It is this aspect of the mind that is known as the mind by most persons. It has, at our present point of evolution, five functions, generally known as the five senses, smell, taste, hearing, sight, and touch. There are, however, certain organs in the brain which have a great deal to do with the operation of thought in the highest types of humanity, viz. the pituitary body and the pineal gland. And when these two organs are developed, two more functions of the mind will come into operation which will lead us to the final knowledge of our own being. These organs, however, are used now by very few, probably only the highest sages. We have all labored so long under the dominion of desire that these higher organs have become atrophied by lack of use, and the higher mind is fully incarnated only in the case of an individual able to function with these and awaken them into activity. The lower mind unites either with the higher mind or, on the other hand, with the senses and desires as in the case with most of us. For example, there are two phases of love. The one we usually call love is really desire. The other phase is associated with the higher mind. Its essence is the principle of sacrifice, of giving oneself up for what appear to be simply abstract principles. The portion of the individual which we call the lower mind is breathed into the personality at birth. Incarnation into a physical body takes place ordinarily through the physical breath. The lower mind enters the body by breath. But it is not the physical breath. It is the mind breath of which the physical breath is simply a reflection. The physical breath is caused by the mind breath, which is what we term the lower mind, and this in turn is the reflection of the higher mind or the individuality called in the Bible the holy pneuma, or the spiritual breath. The spiritual breath will not fully incarnate in man until he is regenerate and a person is said to be regenerated because the spiritual breath has fully incarnated in him. The story of baptism of Jesus and the descent of the dove is simply the presentation of that truth through symbolism. 
A man's world is limited to the thoughts of his own weaving. The world of the individuality is a network of thoughts in which the weaver moves and weaves. The spider fastens its silken thread to one object, then to another, and so on, and on these lines builds its world. The mind similarly extends its lines of thought and fastens them to persons, to places, to ideals. And on these, and with these, and through these, it builds its world. Each man's world is subjective. His universe is limited by himself. His attractions, his aversions, his ignorance, and his knowledge are centered in himself. He lives confined in his own universe. His realities are his thought pictures. The spider's web may be swept away, but the spider remains to spin another web. So in each life, the individuality causes to be built itself a new world through the personality. Although in doing this, it may be unaware of the process as the spider may be unaware of its previous webs. Most people use the terms personality and individuality interchangeably, but they are quite opposite in their meaning. The word personality is derived from personus, meaning through sound. The word individuality is derived from individuous, not divisible. This makes the meaning absolutely clear. Individuality may be applied to a universe, a world, or a being representing the principle of self-consciousness. The personality is the costume worn by the individual. The individuality in each of us, which we essentially are, is the indivisible permanent ego who thinks, speaks, and acts through the persona, the mask, the personality, and it identifies itself with the part it plays in the drama of life. The personality is made up of life, form, sex, and desire, which when properly adjusted constitute the thinking machine into which the individuality breathes and through which he thinks. In the personality we have a tree from which if the individuality will properly nourish and prune it, he may gather and eat of its twelve fruits, and so grow into a consciously immortal life. The personality is a form in which the individuality appears and takes his part in the drama of the ages. It is also like an animal which the individuality has bred for service, and which, if guided and trained, will carry its rider through jungles and dangerous regions to a place of safety and peace. Or it may be likened to a kingdom, where the individuality is king, surrounded by his ministers, the senses. The king holds court in the royal chambers of the heart, and by only granting the just and useful petitions of his subjects, the senses, the king will bring order out of chaos, create well-regulated kingdom where each of the senses will perform its part for the entire good of the whole body. In the reconstruction of every personality before birth, and in the endowment of it with the treasures of its heredity after birth, there is regularly enacted the formation and development of the universe from its incipient stages, together with the whole history of every age. All past evolution has rapidly gone through by each of us in entering the physical universe. The individuality is the creator, preserver, and recreator of our universe dwelling within the alchemical workshop of the body. And this wonderful workshop contains the magic library in which we may read the history of the race. It contains the record of the ages, the horoscope of the future. In it are to be found the alembics and the crucibles, in which the individual may extract, through the foods of the body, the elixir of life, the nectar of the gods. The individuality is the alchemist, and by magic, art, he may transform the appetites, the lusts and the desires, and transmute these baser metals into pure gold, tried by fire in the crucible of the body. Here is consummated the mysterious work of the ages, changing the animal into a man, and finally the man into a god. The personality is of very great value. If not, why was it ever built? If it were destroyed, now we should return into inactive night, or remain prisoners in the midst of time, having knowledge but no power to use it, like a workman without tools, a potter without a wheel, a god without his universe. The gardener can have no fruit without his fruit tree. 
The actor could not play his part properly without his costume. There could be no king without a kingdom. The magician could perform no magic without his laboratory. On the other hand, if there were no individual, no workman, no potter, no god, no gardener, actor, traveler, king of what use the materials, of what use the costume without the actor, life is the tree, form is the costume, desire is the animal. These compose a physical body of sex. The body is the laboratory. The individuality is the magician, thought the process of transmutation. Life is the builder, form the plan, sex the balance. Individuality is the architect, thought the process, desire the energy. Desire has many voices. The loudest usually prevails. The individuality has a single voice, which can be heard in the quietness and stillness of the heart stilling all disputes all strife. This has been called the voice of God, the voice of the inner Christ, the higher self. This individuality, if followed by us, will give us strength and power, and an assurance of having done right. It will assist us to walk in peace through all the storms of life until we become self-conscious. The I am I consciousness in its highest aspect it will bring us at last to that state of cosmic consciousness in which we shall feel ourselves one with all humanity and identify ourselves with all. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.